My brother's fitting me for contacts. Trial starts, I'll only be reading documents in the courtroom with glasses. Looks weak. You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, conversation, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. We did it! We made it to the final season. Yeah, I know there's a 6A and a 6B and a gap of space between the two parts. But they stuck with six, and so am I. This is the beginning of the end of The Sopranos in two parts. Though for a lot of us, it just means that our infinite loop resets back to square one. But this is the beginning of the end of the series as viewed through Potabang glasses. How could this happen? I did admittedly watch it without a magnifying glass and all the military rigor with which I've been watching in the usual podcast mode setup, just to refresh my memory a little. Enjoyed it with the glass of red I recently discovered called Quadraphonic by a Central California winemaker called Lo-Fi. It's no Montepulciano or equivalent from Tony's ancestor's vineyard, but it was different and appropriate for Sopranos on a 100-degree day. I also took some time, after all due respect, to double down on some summer reading, whatever that means. And for once, I enjoyed everything I read for different reasons. And I thought I'd share my list with you. If anybody's read any of these, let me know what you think. And if you haven't, I hope you enjoy one, or even all of them. First, there's Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies by Tara Schuster, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, Billion Dollar Whale by Bradley Hope, Memoirs and Misinformation by Jim Carrey. I was really excited about that one. The Confidence Game by Maria Konnikova, and The Biggest Bluff, also by Maria Konnikova. Okay. That's just a little thank you, as always, for spending this time with me. Let's go. Season 6 premiere, written by Terrence Winter, who would win an Emmy for this episode and who recently, it was announced, will be adapting the Batman franchise into a series for HBO. Congratulations to Terry for that. Gotham never had it so good. The episode was directed by Tim Van Patten and originally aired March 12, 2006. HBO synopsis, in the season six premiere, Tony ponders an associate's retirement request and shares a recent windfall with Carmela. An increasingly paranoid junior takes Tony on a backyard treasure hunt. Hesh seeks restitution for a wrong perpetrated on his son-in-law. Meanwhile, Tony and Phil work out an agreement on the office park deal. Note first off that we're at least a couple years into the future. Over 20 fucking months. But who's counting? And we open on something different. Not the usual soprano home or driveway. An indication that everything could be somewhat off balance going forward. As a species, we generally don't like change, right? I heard Tim Ferriss say people would rather be unhappy than uncertain. 
Like the Lord, Chase giveth and taketh away. But the sudden lane change from the Sopranos driveway to Devon Street in Kearney makes us pay that much more attention. If we took the time to watch All Due Respect immediately before members only, we recall that Tony escaped the Fed's clutches and made it home relatively intact. But now, in the season six premiere, here we are opening with the Feds. The specter of their encroachment is unrelenting, always back of the mind, and in this instance, front and center. We're on the face of FBI agent Ron Goddard, played by Michael Kelly. Sat next to him at a park bench once in Baltimore, overlooking the Inner Harbor. He was eating a sandwich. I'm sure he had to be there for House of Cards. I was there tagging along with my wife, who was attending a conference. No time is wasted conveying Agent Goddard's philosophical prowess. Nobody ever went broke underestimating the taste of the American public. Quite a fucking introduction, if I don't say so myself. This expression, or a variant of it, is credited to H.L. Mencken. The saying, of course, is a dig at those of us who identify as American, in that it's saying that Americans as a whole aren't very intelligent and can be easily entertained or fooled on one hand to the great financial benefit of another. I thought about running for city council a couple few years ago, but I'm no politician, so I'm just going to leave that there. But here's another variant that I liked for its brevity. There's a sucker born every minute. H.L. Mencken, coincidentally, was a product of Baltimore, and writing was his tradecraft. Of particular interest in terms of Sopranos connectivity, he was a fan of Nietzsche. What a profound statement to open on. So direct. So matter-of-fact. So out of context. Well, only because we have no context yet. But the implication is right there. Agent Goddard is looking right at us for all intents and purposes. And we've just been fed five seasons of regularness of life, coupled with immutable mobsters fueled on 100% grade A bullshit. And we've been lapping it up like fucking Oliver Twist. Please, sir, may I have some more? Part of me always heard that line as, you motherfuckers wanted more? Five seasons wasn't enough? Are you not entertained? To which the obvious answer is, despite how over it some might have been, no, sir, may we please have some more. Camera cuts to Agent Harris pondering that statement as we are. His face is our face in that moment. This is also a classic Sopranos detail, right? Imbuing in a character's face our very expression or thought to break the wall, if you will, and let us into the realism. Hyper realism. The show doles out like a pharmacy for the soul. Episode's not even 20 seconds in, and we're already flies on the wall in a way that would make Vizzini from The Princess Bride shout inconceivable. Cue the music. Seven Souls by Bill Laswell and his band Material. Laswell's the guy playing that growling bass throughout. The narrator is William Burroughs. This album was a collaboration between the two of them. 
Burroughs read passages from his book, The Western Lands, aloud, which was the third book in a trilogy of books. The title has to do with the western part of Egypt, or west of the Nile, more rather, which is also known as the land of the dead. And the premise of the book is an exploration of the afterlife through dreams. Per the lore, Chase wanted to use this song for the pilot episode. Case in point for patience here. The needle drop in this episode, first incorporating aid and then leading us into Tony getting shot, couldn't be more appropriate. Burroughs is one of the big three of the beat generation. Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac were Paul Pierce and Ray Allen to Burroughs' Kevin Garnett. But before we fully cue the music, cue the vomit. Only one season left, as good a reason as any to let her rip. But really, as we'll learn, Agent Harris brought back a bug from a tour of duty in Pakistan. Imagine watching someone pull over and puke today. I see Samuel L. Jackson in my head, coming down via parachute, or channeling the force of his character, Mace Windu, in Star Wars, and putting his hand out and saying, Put a lid on it, you contagious motherfucker! Last note on this scene, we're treated to a beautiful frame of the distance between us and the city, between Jersey and the city. Throughout the years, I've always read this scene as a glimpse between the haves and the have-nots, and the space and the telephone and power lines between them. We hear the lyric, the ancient Egyptians postulated seven souls. A nice analog to the seven deadly sins Silvio reminded us of in All Due Respect. By the way, loved talking to everybody on the trivia and hearing what sin you attach to Tony. And I think the overwhelming verdict was that he bears a bit of all of them. And I don't disagree at all. I would caution to judge, though, as I think strongly that we are all a part of Tony in some way, at some time, at some place especially those of us that keep coming back to it and watching with equal parts alarm and astonishment. And as such, we carry tiny pieces of those sins within us, too. I'm certainly guilty of them on a rotating basis, pulling various ones off the bench, like Mike D'Antoni trying out various small ball lineups. Anyways, those fucking seven souls. What's that all about? The song tells us But here they are in non-song form. Ren, or a person's name, or identity. Their entire life's worth of experiences. Sekum, or light. Ku, or guardian angel. Ba, or heart. The most treacherous of the souls. Ka, or double. Like a conscience almost. Kaibet, or shadow the sum total of everything you've done and seen up to this point. And finally, seku, or what's left, the remains. That is all to say, per ancient Egyptian lore, when you die, your heart, or ba, 
gets weighed on a scale by Anubis. If it's lighter than an ostrich feather, which symbolizes truth, balance, order, your soul can go to the West. Remember, the land of the dead in Egypt. If so, congratulations. You punched your ticket to that casino in the sky. However, if your heart is heavier than the feather, your soul is consumed by a demon, which results in the ultimate worst punishment of all. Non-existence. Non-existence is like when the Vancouver Grizzlies were a basketball team. A moment of levity for this hugely dense but consequential breakdown. How's our protagonist for the ages, Tony, and his heart going to fare in this reckoning of Ba with Mutt? How's ours? But enough. What's this? Archaeology with Indiana Jones 101 now? We cut to not necessarily a cut, but rather a slimmed down veto. Doing a photo shoot for something called Thin Club. Not quite Jenny Craig level, but what are you going to do? He's a couple few pounds away from being his own Jared commercial for Subway. Who, by the way, is currently serving a 15-year sentence after having pled guilty to possessing child porn and paying to have sex with minors. To which I thought, Phil Leotardo got 20 fucking years as part of the mafia crackdown of the 80s. But this fucking guy only got 15? Anyways, the photo shoot. Not quite Annie Leibovitz, but what is this, men's vogue now? Nevertheless, the cut to the photographer would suggest he takes his craft equally as serious. We've all got to start somewhere. Seriously, though, it signified to me the importance of detail and paying attention to the little things, the things most people won't notice or see. A true testament to doing things for the sake of doing them, without regard to this or that or clicks or accolades. The sum total of all this intricate detail is at the bedrock of something legendary, like the show. And it's one of the reasons I admire David Chase so much. And I think I've said it at least a half dozen times, and in case I don't get the chance to tell him myself, his mastery of execution over and over again, season after season, is evident in all these little otherwise insignificant or fleeting details. Making shit is easy. Mastering something is near impossible. And to me, Chase is one of the few people to touch that line of mastery, step over it, and then rise even higher. Like Jordan, he's 6-0 and in the finals. And this opening sequence very much shows you how this season, this campaign, is going to go. He's splitting double teams and doing left-handed layups. And we're only 42 seconds in. Cut from that mouthful, the apex of mastery and whatnot, to Janice, breastfeeding. New season, new baby. First indication, of course, that it's Janice is the Rolling Stone tattoo atop her left breast. Ever wonder what her favorite Stones tune is? Or handful of tunes? Maybe I can't get no satisfaction. Remember her complaining about Bobby in one of Carm's movie sessions. 
Or maybe flip the switch. She always could turn it on and off whenever prompted. Think back to Tony asking about where Harpo was having his Sunday dinner. An easy follow-up to that might be their song, Anybody Seen My Baby? How sinister would it have been if Tony whistled that on his way out? Or maybe, Gimme Shelter. Think back to when we first got introduced to her, moving in on her mother's home, like a mad bull lost her way. And finally, you can't always get what you want. That one for all the crash-and-burned relationships we've seen her parachute from. More Top Gun coming. Stay tuned. Last note on Janice. She looks less than thrilled. More burdened than anything. Some of that could be postpartum, but as we'll see in a few moments, the baby's around a year and a half old. Despite the visual of breastfeeding, she feels disconnected. Maybe she's remembering Harpo right there. Did he latch? Speaking of latching, cut to a train. Likely a Lionel. Number 53, Boston and Albany, which was a railroad connecting Boston to Albany, New York. Why, you might ask? To compete with New York, which had access to the Erie Canal via the Hudson River, both for freight as well as carrying passengers. Camera trains on Bobby donning a conductor's hat and wielding a remote control. Guys never looked happier. Maybe now we realize this is why Janice had that expression on her face. The trains at this point have nothing to do with Bobby. He's a mere vessel. The only thing we're thinking about right now is Richie April. Where's the ramp? And how reinforced must a ramp for Bobby be? All good questions. Next, we cut to Eugene Pontecorvo and his wife opening a FedEx. Kind of like Tom Hanks in Castaway. Same youthful exuberance at the unknown possibilities. How many corrugated paper cuts have I endured for the simple reason that I can't patiently and carefully open a UPS or FedEx package? Note a couple of things here. We've never seen Pontecorvo's place before. And no Tony yet. Pontecorvo's house gets put in front of Tony Soprano's. To hell with convention. Anyway. Inside the FedEx is documents bearing good news, which in true Sopranos fashion is counter to the norm. Usually when you get docs via FedEx, it's fucking terrible news, or a pain in the ass at a minimum. Cut to more good news. Finn feasting on a private performance by Meadow. Sadly, I've seen this so many times that now I wonder what's on the TV behind her. How fucked is that? Cut to another TV. This time with George W. playing golf? Is it? It's unclear. Attempting to process his lie? No pun intended there. Relax. It's revealed that Ray Curto is watching on from an exercise device. Life fitness. How the mighty fall, right? Enter Peloton. Life Fitness pioneered the first electronic stationary bike. 
little bit of Sopranos connectivity. It's now controlled by a buyout firm that also has tailor-made golf in its portfolio. Tony's favorite. This scene offers a bit of Sopranos irony, and it's subtle, unintended or not. Ray Curto on a life fitness machine this episode. Back pocket that. Cut to AJ in a class of some kind, college level. At this point, it's fully obvious we're in a montage. Actually, it was apparent maybe a couple frames ago, but now we're fucking invested in it, goddammit. AJ appears to be pioneering the selfie. Remember, this is 2005, 2006. He's maximizing every square inch of that device to its fullest potential. Pre-iPhone. Notice everybody else's notebooks around him are open while his is closed. Remnants of Nietzsche, perhaps. What's the fucking point, right? Also note the long hair and earring. Worth mentioning because Tony, around that age, from what we've seen in flashbacks and whatnot, had a similar look. Next, still in the montage, we cut to a home under construction. The spec house on Crestview, on that lot, remember? At first glance, the lot looks a whole lot less natural. What with the clearing away for the house and all. Not quite as idyllic as the original scene with Carm and Tony together on it in long-term parking. Can't help but think the plastic wrap flapping in the wind portends something dark. Isolated and alone. There's a ghost town, almost western feel to it. This is buttressed, of course, by the frame falling on the lyric, The Land of the Dead. And if you stare at it longer than necessary, and after having watched it a hundred times, and knowing what we know up to this point, the house very well could be a metaphor. Dare I say, an empty shell, like many of the characters in the show, and like many of us who strive to apply meaning and apportion significance to this show, which from the very beginning bluntly told us, in no uncertain terms, it's all a big nothing. Inside the framing of the house, we see Carmela and Aid. Immediate thought is that this is a flashback. Secondary thought is that it's a dream. And a tertiary thought is that Adriana mentioned haunting houses to San Severino some episodes ago. Windows in the corner waiting to be mounted are Pella, not your Home Depot garden variety windows. Carmelo's pulling out all the stops on this spec, with Tony's money, to be sure. And then for the first time in the montage, we hear a voice. It's Adriana's. Who's going to live here? She asks. Carm tells Aid she's worried, and Aid responds, everybody's worried. That statement has never rung more true than right now. Carm separates herself from the pack, says she's worried all the time. This coming from her in an unfinished spec that, at this point, looks nothing more than a stretch of Main Street in Deadwood, is interesting. Only this far after so much time has elapsed? When you've got enough chits to draw from all the building department connections they ostensibly have? Her and Aid share a cigarette. Nice touch. Calamity Jane and Dora Dufran over here. And then a great creative touch. As the camera locks on Adriana for the lyric, number six is Kybit, the shadow. She erases away like a Photoshop mask on the word memory. And it's revealed 
that Carmella was dreaming. And we cut on number seven, Sekou, The Remains, where we see Tony digging, toiling away like he's at Shawshank or something. He's digging holes in the back of Junior's yard on Junior's behalf, looking for 40,000 bucks from the 70s. What is the song lyric, The Remains, here in this scene asking us to consider? Tony? What Tony's digging? Junior? Great artful choice to create this metaphysical element over this imagery. Left-handed fucking layups, guys. Worth noting, given how this episode plays out, that Tony is digging a proverbial grave right in front of his uncle, who for all intents and purposes would later put him there. Just this sequence is a clarion call for the symbolism of the show at every turn, every scene, every frame. Junior, it appears, also has a bit of a green thumb. The yard is filled with various plants growing all around, kind of reminiscent in a small way of Don Corleone's garden right before he falls to his death when playing with his grandson. Much less manicured, though. The 40,000, Junior explains, is his half from the Bohax Hall from the 70s. Interesting connection between Bohack and Bojack Horseman, the Netflix series with its own take on the Sopranos finale. Bohack, however, was a grocery chain named after H.C. Bohack, based in and around New York City. The chain first opened in 1887 and had a strong run until 1977. Wonder if Junior's Hall was the straw that broke the camel's back. When Bohack died in 1931, he was the head of 740 stores. Not a bad haul himself. And no wonder they were a target for Junior and his crew. Tony asks if he wrapped it right. The money, that is. Saying it might have disintegrated because of mold. Is that true? What am I, a forensic paper scientist now? Well, it turns out, Tony was. Money is made from cotton and linen in a three-to-one ratio. Waterproofing it will keep it around longer. But if it gets moist or wet, it will start to mold within a year. A Tony-quality wrapping job might buy you a few decades. Basically, Junior, if the money was even buried there to begin with, is SOL. Note that Junior's nervous and out of sorts. You see it in his hands. But we obviously don't know what to make of it other than the passage of time. Father time. He says the money's for his retrial and mentions Pussy Malanga for the first time since the pilot episode. Remember back when he wanted to kill him. Tony has to remind him that he's been dead for six years. We don't know how or any of the other particulars. At that point, a neighbor overhears them and Tony in true Tony lie-on-a-dime fashion, explains to her that they're dealing with moles in the backyard, chewing through sprinklers. It's true, moles are particularly problematic in the Northeast and as far down as Virginia. And it's a warranted statement as it seems like Tony's dealing with two types of moles. Both mammals, though one variety is underground feeding on earthworms and insect larvae, whereas the other is above ground and hanging around him at the bing and other such places, feeding on state's evidence. 
She quickly goes inside. She knows enough to do that. Or maybe she was a mole too. Undercover. Who needs parabolics when you've got her? If you've got Tony-level paranoia, everybody's suspect. Also, and this is really tenuous, even for me, but she's doing laundry in the back. Last time we saw somebody having anything to do with laundry in the back was Isabella. Could very well have triggered something for tea, is all I'm saying. Next, couldn't help but notice the wall behind Tony as he's urging Junior to get to his doctor's appointment. It's crumbling. It's like the fall of the Roman Empire or something. This image. In the final stretch of The Sopranos. Less than five minutes in. And already several suggestions through imagery and language. That the high note of all due respect. Would be short lived. Inside. Janice comes by. Apparently late. Let me ask you something. Is your time more valuable than mine? On that note, Bobby strolls in leisurely with the stroller. Not a Peg Perego, by the way. Guy spends more on his Lionels than his own baby. Explains to Tony that baby logistics is tough business and takes time. Father of the Year over here suggests Tony remembers. But Tony shoots it down faster than Maverick with a MIG locked on, dead ahead. I can't get him off my tail! Mike, I've got your MIG dead ahead. I've got him dead ahead. I got Tony. I got Tony. I got Tony. I got Tony. Fire it. Tony's about as interested in Janice's new baby as we are. What does that say about us, actually? Especially those of us that are parents. That we could give two fucks about other people's kids. Immediate stray thought I had initially was, is she a symbol that something bad is about to happen? In other words, will she be orphaned, kidnapped, some other tropey trope? It would definitely add a layer of urgency, up the ante, if you will, in this growing division between New York and New Jersey. Jeff Bezos famously said, your margin is my opportunity. This is a little bit of that for New York, if you're Phil Leotardo, is all I'm saying. Baby's name for those logging data points with weights and measures? Domenica, or Nika, meaning Sunday. Bad joke, but for the shoegazers out there, for her, literally every day is like Sunday. Starting to feel good about the way this pod might turn out now that I was able to tee up a Morrissey reference. Cue the music. Bobby takes Junior away to get him ready, and Janice and Tony have words about their uncle, or Knucklehead Smith as Tony calls him. Smith, of course, was a ventriloquist dummy made famous by Paul Winchell. Not the same guy behind Winchell's donuts. That was Vern Winchell, said with the same authority as Carmella, telling AJ about Pete Best. Once again, full circle here, Jan wants him to sell the house and move to Green Grove. Green Grove remembers the place where Tony put Livia back in season one. And features heavily this episode again, though we never actually see it. But Tony's out on assisted living. Complete 180. After what happened to his ma. But really, what did happen to his ma? 
And did assisted living have anything to do with it? I feel like Green Grove was one of the better things in her life. Rather, feels like a lot of it has to do with the conspiracy that brewed against him while at Green Grove. Tony says Uncle June stays where he is. It's the least they can do. Another bit that will come back to bite him later this episode. The onion is starting to peel. Part of that statement also intimates there's better shit I'd like to spend my money on than that now potentially compromised place. From one compromised place to another, cut to Phil Leotardo looking refreshed as ever back in the can, only this time as a visitor. Breaking things down on the outside for Johnny Sack, who's now draped in orange on the inside. Certainly not up to par with the latest color schemes in his most recent issue of GQ. They're going to hold the line with Tony on some shit, they say. What they're doing now isn't public works, so it's up for renegotiation on deal points. Just no World War III, Johnny says. Again, right off the bat here, trouble is brewing, right? Just a little over six minutes in. And Johnny got me wondering about the saying, World War III. Turns out it's been used since as far back as 1941, while still in the middle of World War II. However loosely it may get thrown around, it ultimately has to do with devastation on a scale that would likely make Earth uninhabitable. Safe to say in Johnny Sachs' context, he's drawing a boundary around the tri-state area. There have been several close calls, the first being the Korean War in the early 50s and the Cuban Missile Crisis roughly 10 years later. More recently, the aftermath of the war in Kosovo in 1999, and of course, September 11th and the War on Terror. Okay, enough of that. What is this, the Situation Room now? They're interrupted by Johnny's bride. The word choice. Old school. Phil slides in a low-key blow. Your bride. She's a rock for you, kid. Just too good. Jumps right off the page, even now. Ginny's with her brother, an optometrist, Anthony Infante. He's there to fit him for contacts. Lens crafters over here. Apparently, wearing glasses in the courtroom looks weak. But recent data suggests Johnny Sack might have had it wrong. Rather, poll many defense lawyers and they'll tell you that they want their clients wearing glasses. Called the nerd defense. Which, to be honest, I feel like they could have done a little better with that. Wearing glasses to trial makes defendants look less intimidating, less menacing, and in many cases, less guilty to the jury. Johnny Sack's more concerned about the perception of his peers than he is a jury of his fellow citizens or civilians in this case. In fact, there's proof of this tactic, proof that Johnny's lawyer should have known about. There was a case in 86, a guy killed four people and then shot a half dozen cops who tried to apprehend him, but got off. Sure, there have been cases where it didn't help, but I don't think in any instance it actually hurt. Nevertheless, Johnny Sachs apparently done his own research 
and has his own mind on this. The King of New York's reading books like Robert De Niro and Cape Fear. From the looks of it, though, doubt he's able to rack up those dip reps like De Niro did. Over at the Bing, Gene Pontecorvo comes by to see Tony. Starts off by bringing up his sports book down in Roseville. Roseville? What Roseville? I wondered the first time I heard that. I lived in Roseville, California for a while is why. He's talking about the Roseville that's a neighborhood in Newark. Anyway, anyway, he says something about Bacala making it unpleasant. A little inside baseball. And that's all we're supposed to know about at this point. A little later in the conversation, we do learn that Bobby is jonesing for the business. Bobby, ever since that camera orbit around his head back in season two, when Tony drove off and hurled obscenities at him, has been fashioning himself as a slow and steady opportunist. Like that camouflage he donned in Pine Barrens. Final season hanging in the balance. This guy's going to make his moves. Every day is not going to be like Sunday for him. Pontecorvo hands Tony a David Yerman bag. David Yerman, a costume jewelry designer I spent more than my fair share at back in the day. That's subconsciously probably because of the show. Still, to my somewhat amazement, privately held. Yerman's innovation to the jewelry market was the cable bracelet. And you know it when you see it, even today, even with all the knockoffs. Yerman's twisted helix is somehow signature. Another innovation was their advertising campaigns, where they utilized the likes of Peter Lindbergh to shoot ads that featured Amber Valletta, Kate Moss, Naomi Campbell, and Giselle. Pontecorvo, which is also the name of a town in Italy, by the way, gifted David Yerman watches to everyone in Tony's family. Tony immediately assumes they were boosted. Why do we get the feeling there's a jeweler somewhere filing an insurance claim today? Actually, that ain't what it is. By the way, there were a lot of David Yerman knockoffs. 36 or something. And they all lost in a suit filed by the OG, David Yerman, many years later. So maybe there was a bit of Tony wondering if the shit was even real. Eugene explains that his Aunt Edie died. One that moved to California back in the 60s, which made me wonder if she connected up with Don Draper. Going to California also always reminded me of Led Zeppelin's song of the same name. And the lyric, particularly appropriate to this episode, and even calling back to long-term parking a little, throw me a line if I reach it in time. I'll meet you up there. Eugene awkwardly professes that she was the only person in his life that ever made him feel special. And then the Malaprop. The silver cloud is she did pretty well. Left him a decent sum. Two million. Of course, he surely meant to say silver lining, which comes from a Milton poem, Comus, from the 1630s, which assuredly, not coincidentally, had to do with good and evil. His aunt was married to Victor Borga's agent. Victor Borga, of course, was a comedian and musician, the clown prince of Denmark. He was a prolific worker until his dying days, doing 60 shows a year well into his 90s. Safe to say, Anne Edie's husband raked. Anyway, 
Tony gives him a look like an employer who realizes his underling is hauling in more than he is all of a sudden. Tells him to invest it wisely. Which part of me can't help but think his saying investing it wisely means making sure Tony gets a healthy taste in the amount far greater than a couple fucking David Yerman timepieces. Speaking of timepieces, also note, Eugene Pontecorvo, the guy who wanted to go to Brooklyn to clean some timepieces in all due respect, just gave Tony a couple few timepieces. Just laying that on the table, like seven-layer dip or hummus, depending on your fucking preference. Eugene expresses his desire to make a permanent move to Florida. Him, Deanne, and the kids. Why speak in absolutes, Gene? They're always the wrong answer on any multiple-choice test. Love that Tony first thinks he wants to put money on the street down there, which part of me feels he intellectually gets what's happening, but he's playing dumb, if you will, to tease it out of Pontecorvo, to give him enough rope to hang himself. Yeah, I just said that. Eugene says he wants to retire in Fort Myers. What are you, a hockey player? Always made me wonder, was there a hockey player that actually retired in Fort fucking Myers? I actually spent a little time looking at this and found, to my amazement, that as recently as 2019, Fort Myers is considered a top location to retire. Thomas fucking Edison had a vacation home there. Who knew? Again, goes to show you, like Livia, the things I don't know could fill a book. Tony explains that the sacred oath he took alongside Christopher Moltisanti, Infortunate Son, means there's no retiring from this thing. And Eugene counters with this thing about Joe Bananas. Of course, referring to Joe Banano, boss of the Banano crime family from the 30s to the late 60s, who tried to take out most, if not all, of the Mafia Commission. And when his plot was foiled and he was kidnapped, later fled to Canada, like those ducks, and finally to Arizona. His 1983 interview with Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes is still worth a look, especially where he gets all worked up about the commission and its nuances. Also worth noting how he smiled while denying everything Mike Wallace threw at him. His lawyer's name, his Neil Mink, was a guy called William Power Maloney. If that alone doesn't put opposing counsel on notice, nothing will, right? It also didn't hurt that he looked like a cross between Winston Churchill and Don Corleone. Eugene's final plea after the botched Joe Bananas comparison is that they go back a long way. He makes it personal. You know, the longer you know someone, the less the rules apply. And plus one for Eugene. Because Tony remembers. CYO basketball. I mean, at that point, how can you not let him go? They were on the same hoop squad back in the day. Fucking the original banana boat crew over here. Tony went back to that place in his head for a split second. We see it. But the best Eugene's able to squeeze out of him in that moment is a, let me think about it. Big unanswered question for me here is why Tony never confronts him directly about this again but rather always by proxy, as we'll see with Silvio later on. And is Eugene smart enough to know that it's a soft no? 
Or does he believe this was a solid first outing? A base hit. A victory in a series of battles in which some may be lost, as Sun Tzu instructs, so long as the actual war is won. The war, in this case, of hearts and minds. Tony's, specifically. Cut to Eugene walking in on his wife and daughter looking at places in Florida. Right here, it's painfully obvious. Lots of screen time with the Ponte Corvos. Last time I checked, this was the Sopranos, not the Ponte Corvos, which, of course, can only mean one thing, right? Eugene's days are numbered. But how numbered? Super important note. We're sympathetic to him here. We're led down this road of innocent, pure, CYO Eugene Pontecorvo. Company man since day one. First guy to raise his hand. Last guy to back down. Guy like this deserves a send-off for the ages. However, unlike the Joe Banana scenario, whenever he's ready, right? Hold that thought. But don't hang on it. Sorry. Eugene tells his wife that things are looking good on account that Tony gave him a hug. Then he touts his bona fides in behavioral psychology. He thinks he's playing chess with Tony, but he's just playing with himself. And Tony creating that distance between them only further accentuates this. Meanwhile, his girls have their eyes on a split level on River Road. A split level, for those of you that don't subscribe to Dwell or Architectural Digest, is a house that has several floors separated by short flights of stairs. Apparently, they are harder to sell. Something to do with lack of flow and curb appeal. When Eugene mentions they lost the buyer, that partially helps explain that. Then their son walks in. First we've ever seen him. And he's on his way to Kevin's. Which more recently immediately triggered a thought of the film, we need to talk about Kevin. Ponte Corvo was early on Kevin, man. He knew. He wants to know who else is going to be there. And that statement, it seems, has the makings of a varsity-level showdown. Eugene's concerned about his boy getting high. He's a bit overly rough with him, in front of his much younger daughter. And the whole thing is starting to show a side of Eugene that will make more sense once the episode progresses to its bitter end. I love that we see him unraveling for reasons we think we know, but don't really have any idea of yet. Such a truism generally, too, for me at least, assigning reasons or assumptions to things when I don't have the complete picture. Far from it, in fact. Note that Deanne watches stoically as her husband throws a candy jar fiercely at a brick wall. She's seen this before. She knows the drill. It's all in the eyes. Cut from one complicated marriage to another. Tony and Carm at a sushi place. Another new venue for us, coupled with a Goldfrapp song, Ride a White Horse. Goldfrapp's an electronic duo from the UK, shortlisted for the Mercury Prize. I always remember their song, Black Cherry. But Ride a White Horse was supposedly inspired by Bianca Jagger, Mick Jagger's first wife, I think, who apparently rode into Studio 54 on a white horse. Of course she did. Also, can't help but connect that back to Tony riding up in the Soprano living room 
on Pyomai in the test stream. Thanks in advance for indulging that reach. Just working on my no-look dimes in preparation for the return of NBA basketball. Back to the sushi. Wonder if Junior recommended the place. They got a smorgasbord, omakase style, that includes a spicy shrimp hand roll, Nori's favorite, yellowtail, toro scallion, and oysters. Carmela and Tony are in love with the place, and the little reveal here is that it's all been well since all due respect. They've been frequenting the joint, and it's a point of connection for them. Also worth noting, they're eating outside of Vesuvio, a rarity up to this point. Wonder what that's all about. Carm tells Tony about her dream with Aiden in it. Tony's face is like Michael Corleone's as Solazzo and the Crooked Cop. What's his name? McCluskey? Try to make peace at the restaurant right before he clips them. We learn she's got a stop work order. That opening image makes more sense now. And she's leaning on Tony to get hold of a guy at the building department. Why does Tony delay this? Like, why would he put up the money for a down payment but not see this thing to the finish line? That's the threshold question we're faced with at this point. He keeps talking about the food as she continues her probe about Adriana. It's been a year. Doesn't call, write, or anything in between. Can't help but notice the fact that he's talking about and eating dead fish, whereas she's talking about someone who's sleeping with the fishes. Shiromi, takamaki, and salmon with tomato gets plunked on the table. Shiromi is usually served earlier or first, though. It's a white fish that doesn't overpower your palate like some other fish. But who am I, Nobu Matsuhisa now? Carmela continues checking topics off her list. Situation with Ginny and Johnny Sack isn't going well. Him awaiting trial and all. On top of an asset seizure where they stand to lose everything. Carm may or may not know it. Actually, who the fuck are we kidding? Of course she knows it. But she's drawing a parallel between them and the Sacramonies. In other words, they need to sharpen up. Lest they become a statistic like their fellow mob boss first couple. Tony says Jimmy Patril was like an uncle to John, his father's compare. This, Tony explains, keeps him tossing and turning at night. It's not apnea, it's not antidepressants, they're rattling off more risk factors than a Propecia commercial. Yeah, I tried it once. What? In spite of it all, he explains his libido has never been higher, in addition to all the material fortune they've experienced recently. She says they're lucky, and Tony casts out a zinger for the ages. At least one to get season six off on a strong, writerly foot. $40 for a piece of fish they just flew in first class. I think we're more than lucky. Next up, doing all the rounds in the season premiere, Hesh and his son-in-law, Eli, coming out of a Chinese place. I'm not going to say it, but you know what the fuck I'm thinking. It's Kay's Spring Garden, Jersey City. Later, Hesh mentions Mill Basin, but that's a spot in Brooklyn, and it might have been where Eli encroached on Jerry's, we haven't met yet, business. Anyway, the street they're walking on appears to be called Congress Street, and Kay's is where Congress Street and Central Avenue 
make a T. X marks the spot. Orange peel beef, for the record, is special number 24 on their menu. The Kobe Bryant of menu items. Love the detail of the neon lights cutting out as they walk away. Those guys were chomping at the bit. Maybe Hesh got carried away explaining to Eli what makes a hit, perhaps. They quickly debate who gets to keep the greasy bag for their own enjoyment later. Hesh wins. Power move by the son-in-law. As they enter the car, three guys in a Lexus pull up and reverse hard within inches of hitting them. They pound the glass from all sides. One guy wants Hesh out of the car. Another guy hurls anti-Semitic remarks at Eli. And the agitator's coup de grace is a burnout. Got me wondering about the mechanics of how that actually works. Gasoline itself, it turns out, isn't that flammable. If a match falls in a reservoir, it's likely to go out. But the vapors around the fuel reservoir are highly flammable. Most cars, though, have safety measures in place. Things called an EVAP and a fuel restrictor plate that act as a firewall of sorts to prevent the kind of thing that happened in the show from leading to a fire or worse, an explosion. In older cars, though, with a little patience, that method was an effective burnout protocol. Hesh says, get out of here, Jimmy. These guys are on a first-name basis, thick as thieves, apparently. Why so abrasive, then? If Hesh is in trouble, it's apparent it must have had something to do with the shy business. But we're unclear on the particulars just yet. But we're clear on one thing. It's gotten beyond. You ducking me now. Hesh channels his inner Smokey the Bear and puts out the fire in the gas tank before it spreads out of control. That he had the courage to do that is admirable. Thing could have blown at any second. First instinct would have been to run like Dustin Hoffman in Marathon Man. But maybe Hesh is an expert on fuel system firewalls. I could see him listening to car talk in between reminiscing about past hits. Eli, it turns out, was persona non grata in Brooklyn. Was told never to return, but did anyway. And he took a beating for it. Hesh tries to protect him. Looks like Mick and Rocky III for a second when Clubber Lang steps to Rocky to challenge him. Hesh, though, can't quite take a punch or give a punch like Mick and gets cold cocked in the face. This, as Eli makes a run for it and gets hit by a car. Almost as ironic as taking a train because you're afraid to fly, but having a plane crash into the very train you're riding. The randomness and brutality here almost seems comfortable. In Soprano Land, it's all fair game. People get hurt, and we chuckle. Comedy amidst the chaos. How fucked is that? The more crucial takeaway here is that a taxi cab did a cold-blooded hit-and-run and not only didn't slow down or assess, but rather accelerated, like Nicolas Cage in Gone in 60 Seconds. Why didn't that movie ever get franchised the fuck out? It had legs. Eli, laying there alone in the middle of the street, is a little like Tom Hanks in Castaway, seconds after extracting that tooth. Cut to part of the crew hanging outside Satriales. The angle choice. 
the use of the rule of thirds and the color palette of that establishing shot, it's all religious, transfixing. The focus it provides is not unlike a crucifix behind the altar of a church. Christopher's having a coke and a smile, literally, as he listens to Vito talk about his dropped weight and the whole new wardrobe it's resulted in. We don't know it officially just yet, but Chris is a captain now. He's put in his time, five seasons and then some, and made the ultimate sacrifice. That's for sure. But he's advanced faster than Pontecorvo, who was made at the same exact time. Ralph Cifaretto notwithstanding, whoever said this shit was a meritocracy. Ray Curdo makes a joke that would be funny were he not Ray Curdo. Vito deflects and turns to Pontecorvo's fashion, makes a point to bring out the outdated look of his members-only jacket. But those bad boys have been riding the crest of fashion trends for years, in no small part thanks to the show, but still. Also, it's interesting, the last time somebody made a joke about Pontecorvo, little Polly at the Esplanade job site, Eugene crushed his skull in with a bottle. Vito was right there. But what can you say? He's feeling lithe and agile with his new frame, dancing around the ring, trash-talking like Ali over here. And then, and then, surprise, surprise, Phil pops out with Tony to greet the guys. We learn Vito and Phil are cousins. Always made me wonder if an occasion would arise when Phil Leotardo pulls a Tony Soprano and has to tell someone, he's my fucking cousin. Notice how Benny takes a drag and looks away when he sees Phil. Remember what happened in the finale of Five? The nine-iron beatdown. He healed incredibly well, by the way. Not a scratch on him. But back to that drag pose for a second. Hall of Fame. Couldn't make it look any better if he attended a two-week John Sacramone cigarette camp over by the Finger Lakes one summer. As Vito walks Phil to his car, Tony and Christopher rack their brains about what to make of him. Christopher, as per usual, wants DEFCON 5. But Tony reins him in. What's past is past, he says. Guy's old school and handling business like a true professional. And that's the one thing Tony feels is missing from his crew. What's always been missing. A true professional. And standing next to Chris right there, can't help but think who Tony would turn to if he were in Johnny's shoes. Sill? But he's a consigliere. A number two. Next to Phil? Chris would be in the same boat as what the King of England and Hamilton thought of John Adams and his presidency once Washington relinquished power. John Adams? I know him. That can't be. That's that little guy who spoke to me all those years ago. Cut to Agent Harris stepping out of the car to pay Tony a visit. As they walk up, Vito asks T if he settled the office park shit with Phil. It's going to get revisited. Kind of like this show, right after this stupid fucking podcast. Actually, I may finally take a break. I don't know. Find another time loop to jump into, like, like in that new movie, Palm Springs. Tony asks where Agent Harris has been. A different federale has been in his rear view for six months. Harris tells him he's been in Pakistan doing counterterrorism shit. Saul Berenson over here. A subtle signifier that this thing of ours pales in comparison 
to geopolitical global terrorism, especially back then. Harris introduces the guy at the top of the episode, Ron Goddard. Where's Agent Grasso? Working on another project. I believe I recall hearing that when I talked to Frank. Harris is thinned out a bit. Even more noticeable standing next to Tony. Vito attributes it to Atkins. What's the status of that today, I wondered. Still operating as a going concern, but now in the hands of a buyout firm. Harris says he caught a Pakistani parasite. Not a fad diet, though, depending on who you ask, bugs can be some of the best diets around. Christopher asks if he got the bug from eating tabula. Do they eat that in Pakistan? Short answer is, of course, no. Tabula is a Middle Eastern food, Lebanon and Syria, to be precise. But it's safe to say Christopher wasn't watching Anthony Bourdain, no reservations. So what are you going to do? Harris explains food is why he's there. A veal parm hero. Enough with all the other shit the world has to offer. Speaking of heroes, the Italian sub as we know it in America is credited with originating in Portland, Maine. Hero is the New York variant and colloquial term for an Italian-style sandwich. The term sub started as more of a Connecticut and north of their thing. New England calls them grinders. Hoagies are the Philly version, thanks to a place called Hog Island. The common alchemy of all these, however, is cold cuts, topped with lettuce, tomatoes, peppers, onions, oil, vinegar, Italian herbs, spices, salt, and pepper. Importantly. Cheese is put on the top and bottom so the bread doesn't get soggy. A lot of places don't do that, though. This got me thinking of local Italian delis and how they're kind of a dying breed in many corners of the world. There's a place near where I live called Mario's. Been going there ever since I moved to L.A. What's your spot? DM me, and I'll throw them some love in another episode. But enough with the American Sandwich Lobby pep rally. Christopher, again with the fuck this and fuck that guy, this time directed at Agent Harris, a lot of pent-up animosity manifesting in all directions. No doubt on account of the situation with Adriana. Tony actually feels bad for the guy. Agent Harris, that is. A subtle nod, no doubt, to our mutual feelings for him. He's the one guy, Agent Harris, on the other side of this thing who, more or less, we like. This is intentional. So far, every agent or law enforcement we've encountered either had a chip on their shoulder from some other thing which gave them an axe to grind with respect to suspects they were building cases against, and on more than one occasion, we've been presented with dunce heads. But Agent Harris just feels different. There's an objectivity to him, and he doesn't seem like the guy who's punching the clock or who carries baggage with him from one aspect of his life to another. Agent Harris presents a novel archetype in this show. The Great Compartmentalizer. Inside, Tony gets handed a phone. Patsy's reading leisurely in a chair. Still satisfied from taking that leak in Tony's pool, no doubt. Hesh is on the line with the news. And it's no glad tidings. Cut to Eli in bad shape. Now, the Eli of the Bible, by the way, Old Testament, died of a broken neck. This Eli's neck looks permanently fucked, and he's getting niced by his wife, Beth. 
whose description of all this was a mere, I've had better weeks. Talk about someone whose glass is half full. Hesh is looking on in dismay when Tony walks in. Note Hesh makes a point to thank him for coming. Tony's good about these things. Making hospital calls, that is. And he's done his fair share recently. Vito and Christopher stroll in. Made the trip, too. Makes you wonder how consequential this Eli person is. Was. Hesh explains that they had some money on the street on Phil's turf. And this guy, Jerry Torciano, thought Eli was poaching business. Jerry, we haven't seen yet still, but we already know, is the hairdo. Wait for it. Tony calls Jerry a mook, either an incompetent or short form for maluk, which means motherfucker. Speaking of motherfuckers, cut to the spec house, Carmela, Hugh, and the building inspector. Was he Tony's guy? Ambushing the project? He's inspecting, squeezing wood, contemplating the wood, being one with it. Hugh, nervous, says he's installing gable joists in the rotunda. Now, I don't know shit about roofing, but that always threw me. Gable joists are based on triangles, hypotenuses, and straight angles. Whereas rotundas are, well, round, right? I'm not one to trifle with Hugh. If Hugh's not for hire, he's not one to be questioned either. But that sounds like some square peg, round hole type shit. The inspector can't and won't reverse the original assessment. For the love of Mike. This is pine, sir. Michael Jordan? No. I wish. Goes back farther than that. 1880s or something. It's a precursor to for Pete's sake. Mike was for St. Michael and thought to be safer than invoking God's name directly. The issue is the wood in the house is utility-grade pine. The code calls for Doug fir grade. What's the difference, you ask? Well, pine is porous and has wandering grain lines, and if untreated, may expand and contract, creating torsion and damage. Doug fir, on the other hand, has a tight grain pattern, and as such, is less prone to warping and twisting. Pine, then, is like a streaky shooter, unfocused at times, can go off on any given night, put a house on its back, literally. But the next night, the whole fucking thing can come toppling down. Dion Waiters comes to mind. J.R. Smith. Now, Doug Furs. Those are your... J.J. Reddick's, Kyle Corver's, Ray Allen's, Clay Thompson's, Kawhi Leonard's, if you're so lucky. Just rock-solid, consistent. Not a lot of wandering, not a lot of variability, can be foundational joists, structural joists, or even gable joists. They got you. You can plug them in anywhere, anytime. Hugh says he's been building houses for years. Thinks maybe he should be grandfathered in or something. Kind of sounds like a pre-Moneyball GM reacting to Billy Bean's model for constructing small market baseball teams. Get Pudgy Walsh on the horn. He'll straighten this out. Pudgy Walsh retired, sir. Sounds like a big leaguer, doesn't it? Mr. Inspector explains that that guy's out of the game. 
Unlike Pontecorvo, he was able to retire. Hugh and Carmela go at it a bit. She hired him as a jobber, but he's fucking Hugh. He's not for hire. Love the way Carm scratches the back of her neck as he lets her know about his good deeds about to get punished. The dialogue is second to none. Can't emphasize that enough. But the combination of dialogue and body language breaks its own records. Cut to Vesuvio. Finally, if The Sopranos were anatomy, Vesuvio would be our love handles of the show. Something for us to all hold on to, season to season, episode to episode. The guys are dining out together, and they're waiting on menus. But do they really need menus at this point? Chris doesn't, at least. Jesus Christ, Artie, I could recite that menu in my sleep. Vito comes in, better suit this time. No word from Phil, he says. We recognize now that Tony has deployed Vito to be a bridge to Phil. Vito's fashioning himself as a corporate board observer of sorts. Can sit and consume and digest and relay, but can't really shot call. Either way, big move up from the bakery patron in Tennessee, Moltisanti. I know, different guy, but you know what I mean. For Tony, though, Vito isn't enough. All the permutations. This guy actually sits on boards, shot calls, and likes to hedge a little. He decides to set up a back channel to John via his brother-in-law, the optometrist. A stunad of the first magnitude, Polly mentions. Well, what does that make? Well, never mind. As Tony throws his utensils up in the air, screaming he can't catch a break, always about him, right? We cut to Ray Curdo handing over tapes to Robin San Severino about Angelo Giacolone's murder. Is that Angelo Gareppe? Did he misspeak? Or, more likely, could have been an in-between season killing that we just aren't supposed to know about. The show, after all, is greater than the sum of its parts, especially the parts we don't see. Curdo continues that he can back anything and everything up in court to compensate for any poor audio quality, but then dies on the spot? San Severino's face reminded me of Phil Jackson's when he asked Pippen if he was in or out on the last play of a game drawn for Tony Kukoc, and Pippen said he was out. Cut to a close-up of Tony and Carm at Ray's funeral. There's your fucking break, Tony. If only he knew about it. Chris's AA sponsor is there, and clearly a pain in the ass to Tony, but Christopher explains his talent is far greater than escorting him down the path to sobriety. It's also for forging documents. Can't help but see a Brendan Falone 2.0 in gestation here. The guys all acknowledge Ray Curdo. Tony calls him the best, which always reminded me of something Warren G. Harding famously said. I have no trouble with my enemies. I can take care of my enemies in a fight. But my friends, my goddamned friends, they're the ones who keep me walking the floor at night. A comparison is made to the swiftness of his death with the lengthy, drawn-out battle of Dick Barone. He died, we ask, as Bobby does. Sometimes it's unclear who's in the dark more, us or him. Anyway, Barone died of Lou Gehrig's disease, or ALS, 
amyotropic lateral sclerosis, a disease that causes the brain and spinal cord to shut down. Remember the ice bucket challenge a few years ago? That was for ALS. Pontecorvo walks up to Tony with an envelope. His taste of the inheritance. But it's still not enough. Tony's still mulling it. He's like a batter late in the count, hitting foul balls, keeping the at-bat alive until the pitcher hangs a weak curve. I know. Next up in the queue, Rusty. He lets Tony know about a captain in Westchester doing his own radio broadcast. Love that. W-R-A-T. Tony mentions it's the year of the rat, but it wasn't the rat's turn that year. Not until 2008. On that note, though, we cut to Ray's wake. This, as they call him, a stand-up guy. A dying fucking breed. Again, we know what Tony doesn't. And I don't know about you, but I kind of feel complicit. Cut to Pontecorvo, again, stressing over Tony. Tells his wife he's still thinking about it. The pressure from his wife is disconcerting only to the extent that I assume she knows the drill. She knows, like Carmela, what she signed up for. Unless she doesn't. Unless Pontecorvo kept it so close to the vest that he let the notion linger about them eventually being able to call it quits. Whatever the case, he or she seems to know where this is headed while he clings to whatever hope he has left. Again, just love how we are sympathetic to him here. Poor guy's getting it on all sides. Back at the sushi restaurant, Carmela's in heaven. Tonight it's eel in Spanish mackerel. As they leave, Tony asks her to drive home herself. This as little Polly pulls up in a brand new Porsche Cayenne, like the pepper. What's this? Pontecorvo's taste? A makeup for dropping the ball in the building permit? Guilt? Or maybe a cheaper gift than ramping up a cost basis on a house in a down market, right before the global housing crisis? Foresight. But really, why'd he do it? What's he hiding? Then finally, we get the obligatory morning shot of Casa Soprano. 23 minutes into the episode. Note the wind. I think of the wind as almost like a compass at this point. We need to keep following it. It could very well be a north star of sorts. Even if it leads to a door that reads, Big Nothing on it. And when you open that door, you're met by Occam, and he hands you his razor. Tony comes downstairs in the obligatory robe, two boxes now checked. Will we get the third? Walk down to the bottom of the driveway to fetch the star ledger. AJ's eating cereal, Meadow's heading to the pool, awaiting news on an internship Tony helped set up. Tony calls AJ Joe College, to which I say, what's a season premiere without an overt Godfather reference? Of course, Sonny talking about Michael in one. AJ's lending a jacket to a friend, and Tony suspects he'll never see it again. AJ, confidence still growing around Tony, wonders why he has such a low opinion of people. A somewhat anti-nihilistic tack by AJ. Tony's response? Let me tell you something, AJ. I don't care how close you are. In the end, your friends are going to let you down. There's Tony's version of that Warren G. Harding quote. Family? 
They're the only ones you can depend on. Question. If that isn't entirely true either, where does that leave a person? Tony's family, his own mother, conspired against him. And though I didn't have it near as bad as Tony, family stuff, my own mother, was a big part of my tour of duty with therapy. On that note, what a segue, right? Cut to therapy. Does Tony consider this an extension of his family at this point? Just seconds after mentioning family to AJ? That's the message I took. When you let someone in so much, whether you're paying them or not, they're a patch of fabric on you. You want to bear hug them when it's all over for like 43 seconds straight and have it not be weird. But because of societal norms and conventions, in my version of that, I copped out and bowed like a Japanese businessman, but with one hand over my heart. Tony's glum about his uncle. He goes into a story about a nanny pushing a baby carriage, and in the opposite direction, there's an elder woman in a wheelchair. They crisscross each other. The circle jerk of life, he calls it. Where's the dignity, he wonders. Great question. Is dignity guaranteed? Thought about that question even more given what we're going through right now. If you're lucky, in the end, you can let go of your pride and let your loved ones take care of you, Melfi says. Tony's mother, no doubt deep within his subconscious, comes out. He says he'd rather be stuffed with a pillow. Melfi immediately connects that back to what Tony did to his mother, and he's taken aback. I'm taken aback. Did he tell her that? He can't remember if he did or not. So comes up with some bullshit on the fly, and Melfi, seeing right through it, does what she does so well when she sees right through bullshit. She course corrects and mines into another corner of his head like a Minecraft miner person. Chip, chip, chipping away with a pickaxe. She brings up live-in help. Not quite assisted living, but maybe she's working her way up to it. Which it turns out she is, and his volcano erupts again. Only he's mad at her for saying the actual expression he wanted people to say all along. Retirement community. But now, strangely, he calls it a nursing home. He's against it now. Again, complete 180. Melfi circles back to how this is all about how Tony can't accept the fact that he had a mother who didn't love him. He checks his watch. That fucking beat connects the past to the present so elegantly. Why is it so hard for him to accept? Why is he loyal to his mother? Is loyalty even what you call it? Well, Melfi's going to tell us, finally. She says he's turning the blame for what she did back on himself, vis-a-vis feeling pity for an uncle who conspired against him with her. It is strange when you think about it, especially coming from a guy like Tony, who is so much less grandiose, humanistically speaking. Tony turns the blame for what someone else did back on himself. What is that? Where does it come from? Surely guilt from childhood experiences are the bedrock of that behavior. 
In this moment with Melfi, I'm also reminded of Will Hunting with Sean, his therapist, who cracks the nut and emphatically repeats, it's not your fault. Tony, who we've just learned, turned his mother's shortcomings around on himself, now turns the conversation around on Melfi's mother. And, to Melfi's credit, she goes there. She's playing streetball with Tony, or bare-knuckling it and going toe-to-toe like Rocky against Thunderlips. She admits her mother was manipulative and controlling at times. But she never tried to kill her. Standing 10 count. Ball game. It's less hurtful to believe that they were right to try and destroy you than to accept the fact that she didn't value you. Wow, for starters. And it's interesting because it ties back to Pontecorvo and his view of his aunt being the only person who ever thought he was special. And Tony's immediate deadpan response. What are you going to do? That was less painful for him than actually taking the time to ponder if there was anyone out there in his own life who actually made him feel special. And I don't think at this point, not from what we've seen or heard, that he has one such person in his life. We're gifted with a great, long beat. Giving us time to digest that. That it's more convenient for Tony to do for others what wasn't done for him. Give love, however distorted, than to internalize and accept that he wasn't valued. Of course, if that mental gymnastics wasn't what you signed up for, this also gives us ample time to take note of the wonderfully illuminated statues and figurines on Melfi's bookshelf. Cut to T at the optometrists. Whole crew's pretty much with Tony. T's very entourage this season compared to past ones. He's asking Infante the eye doc to talk to John. Tony brings up Ginny, and her brother says, kid has the weight of the world on her shoulders. Tony, once again, can barely hold back the laugh. The joke that keeps on giving. As ludicrous and shameful as it is. A lot of mileage with that one, but no retreads needed anytime soon. Tony sees some Romanis he likes, but says he forgot his wallet in the car. I think this is proof that Anthony was not a stunat of the first magnitude. He knew that was coming a few beats before. Especially when he looked at the rest of the guys checking out the inventory out of the corner of his eye. Tony says he'll catch him next time and leaves. And Anthony gives his, sure. I'll catch you next time, face, for the ages. Wonder if he filed a claim. Cut to jail. Ginny's telling Johnny about the IRS. They want to inventory the whole house. What does this actually look like? Without getting into the weeds, because I actually studied it, and believe me, it's more brain damage than it's worth. There's an entire manual, like 630 pages on procedure and protocol for IRS agents, the examining process to the collecting process, and on and on. The manual even itemizes the kinds of tools an agent should have handy, including a Phillips as well as a flathead screwdriver. 
makes you wonder what kind of a system overload an examiner might have when confronted with a bag of bird feed. Or, wait for it, Ginny's stash. So, the Maserati's on the table for liquidity. <laughs> Love that. I always wondered why the IRS wouldn't or couldn't just seize that too. Strange to think how that token of excess could escape government scrutiny. We learn Moltisanti's interested in it. We'll pay cash. And Johnny Sack gives us an impression that he would almost rather be violated in prison than sell it to him. Mr. used to wait in the car and all. Then he gives us a great expression of resignation. Infante brings up Jerry. The hairdo? He's in a beef with the Jew. What? God damn it. What? The Jew's son-in-law. It got physical. Infante's actually doing a pretty good job being a go-between. He's got a tremendous facility. A real knack for it. A lot of moxie for his size, too. Considering where he is and who he's talking to. Contemplating while Infante's lips are moving, unclear how much Johnny Sack is even processing what's being said to him, the way he pulls in the smoke of his cigarette before letting it go is like that fire in backdraft. Remember when it creeps through the door and then pulls back? Let me go, Paul. You go. We go. Wrapping up the jail scene, to smooth things over, Ginny pushes over pictures of Allegra's shower. Johnny Sack's thinking, like Willie Nelson about to pen some lyrics. Cut to Tony, Vito, and Chris, waiting. High noon, too, for good measure. Somebody's late. Passive-aggressive bullshit. Christopher sees that in people now, like a sixth sense or something. Finally, Phil shows up with Jerry Torciano and some muscle. Phil looks more and more like a boss every day. Torciano says he would have never done nothing had he known Eli was tied up with Tony, but says he was high-handed. That remark was a little off-color. Subtle, but off-color. 50000 is the price. Next. Love how Phil is running this, to be honest. Real old school. 20 fucking years. He's playing catch-up. The floor is yours, Senator. The split on the office park. It's way out of whack. It's not the same as the Esplanade. Apples and bowling balls. Why bowling balls? Was Phil an honorary ranking member of Ralph's bowling team? Phil wants 65-35. Guessing in Tony's favor. They're doing all the fucking work. There's a quick acquiescence and kisses. Gotta say, if only all deal points could get hashed out that quickly. As they walk away, Chris asks why T caves for Phil. Tony says it's strategy. Note, Chris is really committing himself to the work. He's right at Tony's hip this season, more than any other. And he has an edge to him that you can't help but predict is going to lead to another version of a maverick crash and burn. But without the singing, even though, to extend the comparison, he has, most definitely, lost that love and feeling. 
There are 200 soldiers in that family, Tony explains to Chris. But Chris ain't scared. King Leonidas and the Battle of Thermophile over here. Note the film 300 did come out in 2006. Cut to Ponte Corvo, coming in with a lunch spread from Stewart's. Classic root beer and hot dog joint going back to the 50s. At its peak, there were 60 locations with more than half of them in Jersey. And I shit you not, it was at one point owned by a company called Moxie Industries. But they couldn't fucking sell it. So it went into the hands of a company called DeNovo. Today, most of the remaining locations are all around New Jersey. This lunch spread of Ponte Corvo's was no doubt meant to kiss up to Tony, but he's already gone. Now, Ponte Corvo's known Tony since they were kids. Were a couple of dogs really what would push Tony over the edge to rule in favor of Florida? Come on, man. Really hanging by a moment here. I challenge anyone to play that Lifehouse song right now and not completely flip the fuck out on the chorus. Vito takes a bite of a dog, no bun, and walks away. Likely a place setting for what's to come with him, but let's stick with the assumption that it's Atkins for now. Pontecorvo asks Chris if he's heard from Tony about his decision on whether or not he can go to Florida. Chris knows about it, or does he actually? But plays strategic, like Tony just before him. Now, was this all part of the same con? Or was this something completely separate? In other words, was Chris delegating or was he following orders from T to set this guy up to lead him to a point of no return? Chris says there's a guy, Teddy Spiridakis, who sounds like another David Scatino type, a compulsive gambler who owes some money to people they're connected with in Boston. Fritzy. A lot of world building happening here that we've never seen or heard in seasons past. The enterprise is expanding or something. To quote Rocky in two, it's economics. Chris wants Pontecorvo to take care of the guy. Ship has sailed on collecting. Pontecorvo wants to check in with Vito, his captain, first. Chris cuts him off and says Vito will be down with it. Then he says, get it done and you'll put in a good word to T about the Florida thing. Can't help but connect back to what Chris said moments ago about seeing through passive-aggressive bullshit. Did he see through Pontecorvo right there? Or was EP2 wound up to see through Chris's axe to grind with the world whilst on his last chance power drive? Cut to Nori's sushi place again. Third time. There's that number three. Only this time, Tony's alone. And this time, no time for chopsticks. He's dipping and dunking sushi rolls like he's given himself an allergy test. Most interesting of all, it's a flash-fast scene. No context other than the inference that Tony's mulling things, like maybe what Melfi said about not being valued, or even his health, in just that little pause he takes in between bites. We get a subtle glimpse that could be a storyline going forward. Or maybe he's mulling Ponte Corvo. This especially since we cut right to him and his wife drilling down into the particulars of a home they've made an offer on. Tony's decision, of course, being the only thing hanging in the balance. Pontecorvo's wife says if they lose this house, she's going to die. Something's ratcheting up on that front. The show usually isn't that blunt, but now the writing's on the wall. This can't end well. This isn't Little House on the fucking Prairie, remember? 
Cut to Casa Soprano. Carm, yelling what Tony wants to do about dinner. Uh Uh-oh. Also, didn't Carm get the memo that Tony doesn't like that yelling through the wall shit? Remember, of course, with Valentina? Tony gets on a scale, another tell that health could be a factor this season. Couple notches over 280. Worth mentioning, he is different this season, both in stature and in sound. His voice is different, a little more blocked. Don't know how to describe it other than there's less air. It's almost drier. He takes off his shoes and pants and gets it down to 280. That sound he makes. We've all been there. One of the most relatable glass-half-full moments of all time. Downstairs, Carm brings up dinner again. He says anywhere but Nori's. It was just there. She's crestfallen. Thought it was their unique spot. He offers to go anyway, but she shrugs it off. In a non-sequitur, he asks about the car. She nods. Something happened right there. A reversion to the mean of sorts, but on a higher level of consciousness with them than we've experienced to this point. Their baseline is different, still higher than ever before, but Tony didn't win any extra points with that. She doesn't suspect he's regressed with the extramarital stuff, but she still puts up a shell, a wall. She's not going to let him lull her to sleep, numb her wits with the champagne on champagne Porsche. First, it's Nori's. Then it'll be something else. Tony's track record is to let her down, and she quickly clung to that truth. In a way, actually, it's clarifying for us, too. Their tension is safe. Anything else, like AJ said, is weird. Cut to Ponte Corvo again. Getting out of a car and heading into an eating establishment. We hear a radio broadcast of a Knicks-Celtics game. Soon, guys. Couple weeks away. Inside, Teddy's eating alone. Pontecorvo fakes standing in line to bolt over to him. His jab step was reminiscent of Baron Davis. In particular, that year, he and the Golden State Warriors squad went off. Pre-Steph. Before Teddy can get a word in edgewise, Pontecorvo clips him three times. Drops the gun and heads out. Almost like a marionette or something. Also note the exterior shot and the three window frames. A Sopranos triptych. The art in death. Finally, it's worth noting here that a guy in a members-only jacket just killed a guy with the initials T.S. Driving back away from the scene of the crime, we see Pontecorvo check himself in the rear view. Just like Tony. Whole life's back there, right? He notices some blood on his face. The song that's playing is Dreaming by Blondie. And the prescient lyric, Dreaming is free. He licks it off and wipes the smear onto a map. The camera lingers on that. Evidence, I always wondered. Also, foretelling, perhaps, what would become of him or his family if he kept going south on I-95. Cut to Carm ringing Ginny Sack's door. Carm came over to take her on a spa date. Maybe stop at Ossetane. She forgot the L apostrophe, right? Ginny notices the car. 
Porsche Cayenne, like the pepper. Not for nothing, but Carmelo's look that day is fiery. A lot like cayenne pepper, too. Especially when you contrast it with Ginny Sack, who, with the weight of the world on her shoulders, is clearly under intense pressure and stress. Cut to Vito telling Silvio about his intense workout regimen. Surely something that would rival the Rock's Iron Paradise Instagram regimen today. Vito gets caught in the handicapped spot again. Former judge is back and on his ass about it. Vito getting caught. That's a theme. First Finn, now this. And wait for it, there's more. Everything in threes, right? Silvio, reading the Star Ledger, with the headline, New Jersey Honeybees Feel the Sting. Too easy. Delivers a sting of his own. Tells Pontecorvo Tony told him to talk to him about the Florida thing. It's a no-go on account that he's part of the team. Silvio urges him not to bring it up with Tony. That's not the shape of his heart. That's not the shape of my heart. He wonders if Tony thinks he's going to talk about shit in New Jersey, especially after what he just did. But Silvio was just the messenger, he claims, not his department. Passing the buck. Passive, aggressive shit Chris sees from a mile away, remember? Now befalling Pontecorvo at every turn. First with Tony, then with Chris, and now with Silvio. Silvio exits, and Pontecorvo is left alone with his thoughts and rage and fear. But then Vito slips into the frame. Very uncomfortably, I might add. Go back and watch that shit again. He appears with the same stealth with which he appeared in the frame when he killed Jackie Jr. How does he do that? And then from out of nowhere, he goes Hamlet. Says he could be the boss of this family one day. He's the top earner. But all Pontecorvo hears are hopes and dreams getting flushed down a toilet. Cut to a body of water where said flush ostensibly drains. Stugatz 2. To which I say, why be an original when you've got a name like Stugatz, for starters? Tony gets a call from his sister, Barbara. She needs him to watch Uncle June tonight. Something came up. Her husband inhaled something, and it could be bad. How relatable is that right now? Jan and Bobby are unavailable. They didn't care to elaborate either. Money moves over there. Tony's stuck, says he'll go to Junior's. That's the plan. Barbara, who has 0.03% to do with the functioning of the show, sets off a cascade of events that put season six into motion. Franz Ferdinand over here. Sidebar, Tony's phone is singular. Remember that? And he's got no signal. Could Quasimodo have predicted this? Now AT&T? This no-signal problem still persists. And this is coming from a guy in America's second biggest city. Whether or not he could, Quasimodo that is, we get a timely cut to Bobby, working exceptionally hard on his Lionel train village. Is that what you call it? Bobby's become a hobbyist of railroading. As it was revealed, he was making things hard for Pontecorvo earlier. Janice comes out hot, isn't into the hobby as much as he is. Hey, in his defense, what significant other is? Why do they always got to belittle it? 
Tony pulls up, livid that there's a possibility that they can't watch Uncle June because of some fucking trains. Jan says the underlying reason is a preschool meeting. Nika's only 15 months old. It is true, though. That shit starts early. Janice reminds Tony of how competitive Carmella was when it came to this stuff with AJ. And we get a great Tony line in response. A lot of good it did. Then, Bobby offers to go to Junior's. Right there, for a beat. Everything could have been status quo. But Tony, potentially being a good uncle here, says he'll do it himself. As he storms off, Jan throws assisted living in his face. She doesn't know when to stop, does she? He turns around like Marty McFly in Back to the Future and immediately notices the conductor hat on Bobby's head. And with just a look, Bobby's reduced to rubble. Cut to Carmela and Angie at dinner at Vesuvio. Catching up. And patching up, apparently. They can't remember what they fought about, and quite frankly, neither can I top of my head, unless it had something to do with the falling out of Angie complaining about money to Carmela, and she told Tony, who in turn touched up her Cadillac. And Artie, we learn, is getting back together with Charmaine. Unceremonious moment, but does trigger the test dream and Tony's fantasy about hooking up with her again. Guess that's off the table. Back at the Ponte Corvo residence, Eugene is trying to convince his wife that buying in a tonier section of New Jersey is a good option, all things considered. But she's over Tony and this life. She shows him drugs she found in their son's room. Did he even try to hide it? Two or three early Jay-Z tracks could have easily set him straight on viable stash pots. Then Eugene's wife goes gangster in her own right. For Tony to... Tony, Tony, why don't you kill him? Put a bullet in his fucking head. I can't do that. But you think I don't know that you've done it before? He counters that he's the boss. Then she puts her foot on the gas. The boss of what? He's a piece of shit. The boss of what? Great question. A veal parm hero of a question you can really sink your teeth into. The boss of what? Now Ponte Corvo's on a tightrope. He wants to hear her, but he keeps going back to the dark side. A combination, like Yoda taught us, of fear, which leads to anger, which leads to hate, which leads to suffering. Cut to Junior, looking more decrepit than we've ever seen him. That happened fast. And all it took was no uppers. Kirk Douglas is on the tube. The movie is Paths of Glory by Stanley Kubrick. I believe it was his second film. A movie about an impossible mission. Parallel? Well, in this episode, we're dealt with two impossible missions of our own. Eugene's retirement to Miami and Tony's reconciliation of his past through his relationship with his uncle. Also, Kubrick once said, and this is something I remember hearing about years ago and has informed the way I talk to any artist or creator ever since. He said he doesn't really like talking about what his work means, what this or that meant. It is what it is. And if it was supposed to be any different, he would have shown it. T.S. Eliot, 
had to do this to tie back to the T.S. who just got killed and the Tony Soprano who's about to get shot, was once asked what a poem meant. And he simply said, I meant what I said. If I could have said it any differently, I would have. And this same kind of reasoning applies to Chase in my mind, whose three words have haunted me on multiple levels ever since he said it in regards to the show. It's all there. Then, a great line from the film is presented to us. You have spoiled the keenness of your mind by wallowing in sentimentality. (sighs) I can fucking relate, General. Preach. The film continues. Those men didn't fight, so they were shot. Cut to Tony entering. Junior tells him he lost his uppers. God, fuck it all. Relax, will you? Notice how Junior says God directly, whereas Hugh maintains some modicum of separation vis-a-vis for the love of Mike. Don't know why, but I dug that. June says the phone keeps ringing. He's convinced it's Pussy Malanga. T says they'll get J. Edgar Hoover right on it. Of course, that was the first director of the FBI. His tenure lasted eight presidencies. Definitely longer than San Severino's. Cut to Pontecorvo again, trying to convince his wife things will be all right. They'll get a vacation home in Florida. She can go ahead. And in time, Tony might even be out of the picture on his own. This piggybacking off Vito's fantasy. Dreaming is free, right? Like the Blondie song tells us. Then his phone rings. Go ahead. His master's voice. A fantastic reference to a painting of the same name and the essence of the trademark of the recording industry. And everything about the way we feel about Pontecorvo up to this moment forever changes. It wasn't T or Chris or Silvio or Vito or Pauly who called him. It was the feds. Cut to Eugene getting into a car with Agent San Severino and an associate. They say he's going to step up, going to get a button of sorts. He puts two and two together that Ray Curto was a cooperator too. Pontecorvo's a designated hitter now. Reflection time. What different trajectories Pontecorvo and Moltisanti have taken? Both made at the exact same time. Now both completely fucked in their own rights but we're just now putting the pieces together. A great, albeit painful, contextual payoff. Ultimately, the feds echo Tony. Florida's a pipe dream and just ain't gonna happen. And we cut to Pontecorvo at home, drinking and reminiscing through family albums. Never a good sign. It's actually the calmest and most relaxed we've seen him all episode. There's always that proverbial calm before the storm. Great portrayal of that here. The sound design is applied with great effect too. We hear the quietude of night under his breaths. Then he picks up a seashell. And part of that motion makes you wonder if he's going to do something to someone else. The close-up on his face is as haunting as ever. Like we're looking at a ghost. For the entire time that it's on him, you think that he's in the living room, but the next frame reveals 
him hanging himself. Ingenious shot choice. Gets you every single time. Then that struggle. He immediately changes his mind. He tries to undo it for a few seconds. Probably one of the most terrifying depictions of that act I've ever seen. The linger. The urine. The detail. And there's your dignity, by the way. The fundamental Sopranos curveball here, though, is that up until two minutes ago, we would have been devastated for Eugene and his family. Now, in literally the blink of an eye, witnessing him in the car with San Severino, how quickly our allegiances turn towards Tony and against anyone who would dare cross him, especially from his own crew. Back at Junior's, Tony's cooking pasta, the DiCecco brand, a Sing household staple ever since the show. He's humming along to some vintage tunes, Artie Shaw tunes to be sure. Tony's long walk to Junior's staircase to say 10 minutes is ominous. Even not knowing what happens, it's prime real estate for treachery. The whole setup in the last few scenes is so methodical so choreographed, stunning. The music distorts the suspense, the obfuscation. One-handed push-ups by Winter and Chase here. You've seen shit like this before on TV, but never the way we're going to break it down for you. Junior, appearing even more agitated, asks who's down there, his final tell. Tony's response, Artie Shaw. Of course, a reference to the music in the background. Not for nothing, but his initials are also A.S. June says don't go anywhere, and right there you kind of wish it were the other way around, right? Like, Tony, get the fuck out. Always wondered if this next sequence would have been any different if it weren't at night. And say earlier in the morning or later in the day, like when we're used to seeing him there. Tony goes over to look at the music Junior has on his stereo setup, calls out for some wine, Right as Junior comes down. Screw you or fuck you, Pussy Malone. Junior fires one bullet and two people get shot. Tony and us. He falls right on the lyric. Nothing can be done. Junior runs off. The tension. The tension of the last five minutes in general. Tony looks at the blood on his hand And right there, I'm not quite sure if he's flashbacking through his life, but I sure as hell am flashbacking through the past five seasons. From his scot-free breakaway in the last episode all the way back to the beginning where Carmela tells him he's going to hell when he dies. Those guys in Isabella missed. Junior didn't. Full circle. Now, we know Tony can't be dead, right? Not now. Not like this. We saw Chris go down. This has to be the same, right? These are the permutations that go through our minds at internet speed every time. But this very well could have been it. This could have been the chase curve for the ages. What life is like for one season without Tony Soprano. But we'll have to wait and see. Strangely, Junior pushes the gun under his bed and hides in his closet. No rhyme to his reason, no reason to his rhyme. This on the lyric, don't try hiding because there isn't any use. 
he has deteriorated to a point of no return, and Tony has fallen victim to that deterioration firsthand. Despite Melfi's warnings, despite Carmela's views on Junior, despite Barbara's warning about his disposition, especially today, the truth is Melfi was kind of right. The pain of assigning or apportioning blame for the misgivings of his mother and uncle is less painful than acknowledging he wasn't loved. In many instances, this scene is a painful realization that for Tony, even a bullet to the torso was less painful than the truth. What a powerful characterization of that axiom of life. The truth hurts. Tony reaches for phone number one and pulls it out of the wall as he falls back in complete and utter pain, the shock wearing off in an instant. The song, by the way, is Comes Love, an Artie Shaw song Helen Forrest is singing. It chronicles all the things in life we can overcome. But love, snowstorms, fires, blown tires, summons, headaches, toothaches, pandemics, nightmares, bullets, we shall see. All that other stuff, though, piece of cake. But love, no chance. And this again takes us back to Melfi's office. His transferred guilt breeds this distorted love for his uncle his past, his heritage, his mom and dad. And come this love, as the song explains, nothing can be done. We cut to Carm and Angie walking out of Vesuvio. Out of place, yes. Takes us out of the moment. But it's a brilliant way to take this micro-incident and immediately pull wide and give us a macro F-22 view of the situation of the regularness of life all around us. Carm thinks she's got the upper hand walking to her Porsche. But Angie chirps her lowered Corvette that she bought herself. Nice upgrade from that Cadillac Tony smashed in. Forget humble bragging. Carm's overt bragging got shoved in her face like the summons in Artie Shaw's song. And a reminder of how small and petty it all is when life hangs in the balance. Just beautifully done. Wrapping things up, we cut back to Tony. Because how the fuck are you going to end on a Porsche Cayenne, right? Tony screams up for Uncle June to call 911. He manages to slide his way to the kitchen and pull the phone down. All 280 pounds of him. He's able to dial 911. Right in that moment, it kind of makes you wonder that the extra weight might have actually helped rather than hurt him. Maybe his mission-critical tissue would be spared. But the framing of the overhead shot leaves us with the possibility that he's gone. And that Vito Spatafor will be left to take his family into the 20th century. More textbook sound design. The bubbling up of the pasta water could also double for blood pouring out of his body. Could also double for our heads about to explode from what was just presented to us on screen. A masterclass on how to premiere the beginning of the end. That's all I got. See you next time.